0: Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Luke 13,
1: starting in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you evil workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, and from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last.
0: Awesome. Good morning. How are y'all? Good. Thank you. It's co- All right. We're going to be one of those days. I like it. I like it. It's good to see you all. Man, uh, Emily and I did a marriage conference last weekend down in Branson with a bunch of our folks. We weren't here, and then the week before it snowed out, and so... It's good to be here. It's good to be with family. Um, We're going to jump into the gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 13, verse 22, is where we'll start. Remember, it's the gospel according to Luke. It's not the gospel of Luke, it's the gospel of God, the good news of God. It's the gospel according to Luke, Uh, chapter 13, verse 22. Luke starts here saying that Jesus is going through towns and he's on his way to Jerusalem. Now, We've reached a point in the book of Luke where, where, the, where it changes. And no longer is Jesus just going around teaching, doing miracles, healing. He has now decided he is on a journey and that journey is to Jerusalem. Now what will he do in Jerusalem? He will die for the sins of the world. And there's all kinds of reasons why he goes to Jerusalem. The Old Testament imagery about uh, the Messiah coming to die in the place of Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish life. So he's on the way to Jerusalem. At this point, the religious leaders as a whole have rejected him. They have decided he is not from God. He is to not be listened to. As a matter of fact, they're planning his uh, betrayal, his execution. They, They are working behind the scenes to make this happen. The crowds are still following him. There are still a big group of people because, if you remember, we've talked about this many times, the crowds that that hope Jesus is the Messiah, are wanting him to be the Messiah that will come, kick out the Romans, will make Israel the rulers of the world, like they see Jesus as a military leader and a political leader, not a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah. And so they're with him right now. He'll even enter Jerusalem pretty soon. And what will the crowds do? They'll lay down palm branches and say, all right, our king has come. Here we go. It's time for rebellion. But then three days later, when they see him beaten with a crown on his head, they'll cry, no, crucify him. It's not ours. And that's where we are. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And in verse 23, someone comes to him with a question. Now, this is, this is stereotypical Jesus here because someone's going to ask him a question and his answer is going to be different than what they think. Here's the question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? That's the question. That's the question of the day. Will will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know who asked this question. Luke doesn't tell us. Is it a disciple? Is it a follower of Jesus? Is it a Pharisee? Is it a skeptic? We don't know who asked the question. So therefore, we don't know the heart of this question. The question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because there's a couple of of ways this question can be asked. It could have been asked by one of the religious elite Someone who, maybe one of the disciples that kind of thinks they're in and everyone else is out and it could be the heart of this question. Hey, Jesus, it's just us, right? Like, us that are in, like, this kingdom pretty selective, like, it's just us. It's just a few of us that will be saved, right? That could be the heart of the question. Or, it could be maybe one of the the sinners, the outcasts who have been told by the religious elite that they are out. It could have been them saying, Like, do I have a chance? Is it true what they're saying, that those who are saved are just a few and I'm out? We don't know the question. We don't know the posture of the question. But the question is, Jesus, will those who are saved be few? Now, we've already, we talked about this recently, but it's so interesting. Does Jesus, does he ever respond to a question? No, not really. What does he do? He usually asks another question, or he tells a story. He kind of diverts the question somewhere else. I want to see again. The question, will those that are saved be few? It seems like there's this question kind of pointing to there's an exclusive group and all those outside are out. And anytime that type of question, when Jesus tries to get pinned down on who's in and out, seems like Jesus always redirects the conversation right back to them. Hey, while you're concerned about everyone else, let's talk about you. When people want to discuss others jesus makes it a discussion about them and i think that's what he does here verse 24 remember what was the question well those come on you're gonna talk to me today we're not doing quiet church here come on what's the question well those who are saved be few here's jesus answer verse 24 strive to enter through the narrow door for many i tell you will seek to enter and will not be able thank you, Jesus, for that clear answer. Right? That, well, those that are saved be few. Well, let's talk about that. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Now, if you're taking notes, see that word strive. I want you to circle it. It's a Greek word that I can't not pronounce and I'll get made fun of if I try, so I'm not going to. But the Greek word, we get our word agonized from. That word strive is a Greek word which, ha, which means like this athletic contest or like a combat where it's like it's a fight, like it's a dog fight. That's what the word strive means. It means to fight bravely, to fight to the death, to fight with this, this, this curiosity, to agonize in a fight. A, a good example, we have several of the football guys that are sitting right over here that, that come each week. Uh, you watch them after a game, they come off and they're like, they bloody and there's bruises and like, it is a fight for victory. That's what that word means, strive. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Now if you've been in Hill City for a while, you hear this and you're like, wait, wait, wait a second strive. Like, what's the number one message we preach every week here at Hill City? It's not based on what you do, isn't it? Is that, is that fair? You guys have been here? Every single week. Thank you, Teresa. Every single week. It is, you do not earn your salvation. Every single week. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is saying, strive, fight to enter through the narrow door. We'll we'll come back to that. And this is a passage, Matthew, will, he'll, he'll, he'll say this a very similar thing in Matthew chapter 17. He'll say it like this, enter by the narrow gate, so now it's a gate instead of a door, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to eternal life, and those who find it are few. So apparently, according to Jesus, there's a wide door that's easy to walk through, that many walk through. And there's an easy door that's difficult to walk through, and very few walk through it. But what about the whole, like, it's not about what you do. Like, what about the whole passage, Jesus, where you say, hey, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. And now, Jesus, you're telling me i got to strive and fight? Like, how, how do I reconcile these things? Now, one thing I'll say, side note, when Jesus talks, we always have to remember the group of people he is talking to. Jesus is not having a conversation here with um, Midwest America church-going population that just casually attend church. He is talking to a group of people that are more faithful than any of us. I mean, they read their Bible uh, multiple times a day. They take a Sabbath where they count their steps to make sure they don't work too long. They t- have rows with tassels that they are constantly walking around saying Bible verses to themselves. Like, this is an extremely pious group of people that he's talking to. But Jesus is not tar- talking about earning salvation. As if we look at the whole message of Jesus, and this is a, a, a place we have to remember, like, never take one passage of Scripture And pull it out and build just your theology on that without looking at the whole of Scripture. It's very dangerous. Because you could take this part out and say, man, I've got to strive. I've got to do all these things if I'm going to get to God. But that's not the message of the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. We preach every single week here. You get to God by faith, not by works. So what is Jesus trying to communicate? What's he mean to strive, to fight through a narrow door? It's a metaphor to help us understand. Jesus is trying to help us understand what the kingdom of God looks like. And so let me illustrate like this. Let's say on this side of the stage there's a big wide door. It spans the whole length of this side of the stage. And, and, And there's a door to walk through here. And on that door are the words, you are in charge. Right here. And then on this side of the stage, there's a little door. And on the front of that door are the words, deny self. And I'm standing here. Which way am I going? Every time. In my human condition, in my flesh, my go-to, your go-to is I'm in charge. That is the human struggle. That is the human condition. But the way of Jesus, the kingdom, says deny self. And that is a fight. See, the kingdom of God goes against the kingdom of the world, and the kingdom of God goes against the kingdom of my flesh. Because my flesh says, I'm in charge. The invitation of Jesus is, no, deny yourself, I'm in charge. So Jesus says that the kingdom of God, it's a metaphor, it's like a narrow door. There's a wide door, and it's easy to walk through, and most people are walking through that. He says, no, there's a different door, it's narrow, and it is a fight in that door, through that door to deny yourself, but this door is life. He says, this is what the kingdom is like. So it's a fight to get through this door because the other side of this door is completely opposite of what you and I want to do. Here's what Jesus will explain it like this, Matthew 22. Here's what it looks like in that door. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depends all of the law and the prophets. Okay, so at first reading, again, this is what the door looks like. This is what this narrow door looks like. Jesus says, here's what it looks like. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, cool. I come to church. I, some, I got a warm fuzzy today when, we hit the, when they kind of band built that up, and Bob hit the cymbal. I was like, yeah, I love Jesus. And sure, my neighbor's a nice guy. I mean, the one down the street's a jerk, but I, I, I don't do mean things to him. I'm a nice Guy. But then Jesus continues to teach and show us what the kingdom of God really looks like and what does it look like to love God and love your neighbor out of the same heart. And so one example he'll give will tell a story about a Samaritan guy walking down the road and he sees a guy who's been beaten and robbed and this Samaritan guy stops everything he's doing, takes on the burden of this guy on himself and says, that's what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And that comes against what I want to do. Jesus will say it like this. You've heard it said. This is what the kingdom is like. You've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I've said that. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. See why he uses the word strive, fight? Because to walk through this door, to live in this kingdom, is to say no to retaliation. Does that come natural to anyone? Okay, I guess you guys it does. Let me give an example. Let's give an example of this. I'll slap you. No, when, when you're slapped, when, when someone jabs you, what's, what's our flesh? Oh yeah? Let's go. Jesus says the kingdom is different. Now this door, the wide door, Yeah, retaliate. Take revenge. Jesus says, no, the narrow door. Turn the cheek. Let's give you another one. You've heard it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. Jesus says to walk through the narrow door to live in the kingdom and the narrow door is to have enemies that hate you, but to pray for them and love them. Does that come natural to anyone else? me neither so he says strive fight to enter through that door he'll say another one do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys where thieves do not break and steal see the the wide door the message is Buy stuff. Just consume, consume, consume. Have more stuff, more money. Just consume. Wave Jesus. Give. Bless. Be generous. See, Jesus doesn't lie to us. He doesn't tell us, hey, come follow me and it'll be easy. And then on the backside, ha ha, gotcha, here's what it looks like. No, He tells us there's a narrow door, it's tough, it's a fight those who walk through it are few. See, the nature of the kingdom comes against my nature. And only a heart that has been regenerated, made new by the Holy Spirit can ever live in this kingdom. That's the only way. Because here's the deal. Like, I, I can sometimes forgive people. I can sometimes take someone's burden as my own. But to live that as a pattern of my life, that is not on my human ability. That is a miraculous work of the Spirit to regenerate regenerate my heart and make it new. We sang that song, that come come to Jesus song earlier and it talks about the commandments of God becoming a happy choice not a dutiful burden. That only happens by the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate, regenerate my heart. So Jesus said, Jesus, will those that are saved be few? Well, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a narrow door. And that narrow door is deny self and partner with God and bringing goodness to creation. The wide door, he would say, is the door that says you're in charge and just keep bringing the same old narrative of sin and suffering to the world. Now, tough passage, tough section here, verse 25. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying lord open to us then he will answer you i do not know where you come from so apparently this narrow door is open right now like it's there and it's there's an invitation from jesus by faith to walk through that door live for god but jesus tells us once the door is shut which means there will become a time when it is shut Once the door is shut, it is shut. There will become a time when you are no longer able to walk through the door of life with God. Now, when is that time? There's two times when Jesus comes back to get rid of sin and make a new kingdom here on earth, or when you die. That's when the door becomes shut. Now this is why we teach through the Bible verse by verse. Why we usually almost always jump in a book of the Bible, we just work through and we get done, we go to another one. Because if I'm sitting on a Monday saying, you know what, what am I going to preach this week? I got an idea, hell. I'd never do it. I don't like passages like this. And I want you to hear my posture, even as we jump into this for a little bit here. My posture is not, you better turn or burn. You better watch it, or God's gonna. That's not my posture. My posture actually is this posture where I feel like agony for many of you. Many of you that I love, that I don't know kind of how you're handling faith and how serious you're taking this. Now, I'll tell you, I'm never gonna be the one to say who's in and who's out, ever. I'm not the Holy Spirit. Can't do it. Allow us, if you will, allow us to jump into this and feel the weight of what Jesus is talking about because he says there is a time when the door will be shut. See, we have to have a complete view of God. Like it's easy to talk about God as love, which God is love. As a matter of fact, when God created the world, all God was, was love. But when humans rebelled against God and created sin, now God is love, but he is also wrath. He's both. He's a God of love where he's full of grace, he rejoices in sinners coming home, he's patient, he's kind, he's he's inviting you to come follow him, but he's also wrathful, punishing sin and evil. His anger burns against sin, sins against his purity, his righteousness, and it's a righteous anger. So God is a God of love, yes. Yes. But God is also a God of wrath. Now, his wrath is even an expression of his love. Let me give you an example. I, I like simple examples. I kind of tend to be a little simple-minded. I think they help. Most of you go home today that have a house, which the first half of the room doesn't, but you have a little apartment or dorm room, but whatever. So, you, you go, so one day you'll have a house you'll be proud of, okay? I hope for you. And you're going to walk into that house today, most of us, and there's nothing but just really kind of love and rejoice, like, I have a house, it's beautiful, I'm proud of my house. And there's no sense of wrath as you walk into that house. But, if you find out this afternoon that you have an infestation of termites eating the walls of your house from the inside out, when you arrive home now, You arrive with a love for your house, but a fury, a wrath, for this infection that is eating your house up and corrupting it. So on one hand, out of your expression of love, for this is my house, I'm proud of this, my family lives, you have wrath to kill the infection, to kill that which would destroy it. See, God in his love has wrath that burns against sin. God hates sin. It's an exchange of his glory and goodness for that which isn't God. And his wrath burns against it. Because here's what sin does. Sin takes God's beautiful creation and the crown of that creation, humanity, and it twists it, it ruins it. If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about the Imago Day that humans are created in God's image. Sin is a destruction of the Imago Day. It causes ruin. It causes people who are loved in God's image to become objects of lust. Become recipients of evil and hurt and death and murder. Like, like, let me, like, and God hates it. Let me give you an example. Super Bowl happened a few weeks ago. And actually in the news this week, a, a new development came out if you follow the NFL. Every year around the Super Bowl, and all the, the pomp and circumstance of what happens, there's a dark side of this, because anytime you get hundreds of thousands of men in one city, you know what follows? Sex trafficking. And every year around the Super Bowl, there are tons of arrests, and law enforcement enforcement do stings to try to break up these sex rings and arrest pimps that are prostituting women. And do your research. Again, this Super Bowl, another big string of arrests. So... We look at that and we're like, oh, that's awful. How could anyone anyone ever put someone else in bondage and sell them? So we hate sex trafficking. God hates lust. The seed that draws sex trafficking and makes that an issue. Because sex trafficking takes a human, creating God's image, and makes them a thing to be used. And as much as you kind of hate that, God's anger burns against it. God doesn't want to kill sex trafficking. He wants to kill lust, which, by the way, is inside of all of us. So we've got to have a complete view of God, and that's what Jesus teaches us here, that God is a God of love, but God is also a God of wrath, punishing sin. Romans 1.18, Paul says this, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress truth. So God creates humanity. He's a God of love. He takes joy and pride in his creation. This is good. He creates humans. This is very good. All of creation's expression of his love. Well, the Bible story goes on. The next part of the story, a couple chapters in, humans rebel against God create, God's creation, bringing in sin and suffering and death. And so now God, in his anger and wrath, says, I've got to kill. I've got to punish this rebellion, this sin—that just like those, those uh, um, whatever they call in your home, what are they called? Termites. I had parasites. I knew that wasn't right. The termites that would spread and 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 threaten your creation. God says there is a, a a sin, this destruction that's wanting to spread through all of my creation, ruin it, ruin humanity, and His wrath burns against that sin. That sin that would bring destruction to His creation. His wrath burns against it. His righteous anger burns against that sin. The punishment for that sin is death. And God, in his righteousness, here's what he could have said. All right, humanity, you rebelled. You brought this curse in. You're destroying creation, destroying one another. All of you are out. All of you face my wrath. He's righteous. He could have done that. But God, in his mercy, sent Jesus as his representative, his own son, to the earth to absorb God's wrath of sin upon himself so that guilty sinners like you and I can believe in Jesus, be reunited with God, and join him in partnership together with one another. That's the big picture story of the Bible. See, God's wrath is an extension of his love. So it's easy to read a passage like this. Well, once the door is shut, it's shut, and it's like, well... How's God loving if he does that? God's loving because God hates sin. He hates what it does. You hate it. And here's the cool thing. If we'll allow ourselves to step into God's wrath, you'll actually see him as more glorious and beautiful. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say that sin, another stupid example. Let's say that sin... Represents if I had a coffee cup up here and I just dumped it and spilled coffee all over the floor. Let's say that coffee, um, because it's Starbucks, it represents sin. Okay? Um, <laughs> here's what God could do to ruin this infection of sin that's on the stage is He could take a, a rag or a mop and, and wipe it off and clean it, right? Thus, removing sin and the stain of sin that's on this floor. And that would be awesome of God to do that. But that's not what God does. See, there's, there's a word here called propitiation. You say that? Kind of. He kind of got it. It's an important word because propitiation means God's work in consuming wrath into himself. Let's go back to our coffee. On, coffee's on the floor represents sin. God did not just come and wipe away sin. Here's what God did. God himself said, I will be the sponge, Jesus. I will come and I will absorb all of that sin into myself. See the difference? God didn't just wipe your sin. He absorbed that sin into himself in Jesus and paid the penalty of sin, which is death. Propitiation is a beautiful doctrine that will teach you more in God's wrath, how it's actually an extension of his love. Jesus keeps going, verse 26, it's scary. So he says, remember, there'll be people on the outside knocking, saying, hey, let me in. And the guy's like, no, the door's shut. But look at what these people will say. Then you will begin to say. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a group of people here. What was the question? What was the original question? what well those who are saved be few come on i'll I'll make fun of you if you're gonna do that you gotta talk back to me let's go well those who are saved be few jesus says then you will begin to say those on the outside we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets jesus see who he's talking to he will say i tell you i do not know where you come from depart from me all you workers of evil in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are out. So again, we have this metaphor, narrow door, it says deny self, that the invitation is to walk through that, it's a fight, it's a striving, especially on the other side, to live in that. That the gate is open, the door is open, but once the door is shut, it is shut. There'll be people on the outside, they'll start knocking, hey, let me in, let me in. And the master will say, no, the door is shut. And then we find out these people are not rebellious sinners that said, God, I don't care about you. Who are these people that are knocking? People that thought they were in. People who have ate and drank in the presence of Jesus. People who have affiliated with Jesus and expect to affiliate with him in eternity, and he says, no, 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 I never knew you. As a matter of fact, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is a phrase that that will be used often in the Gospels. It's hell. And again, please hear my posture. This is not a turn or burn, you sinner, talk. This is a, with this weight, heavy weight, saying, may we please together listen to the words of Jesus. He is speaking truth. So according to Jesus, there are people who think they're united to him in this life that really aren't, and therefore will be disconnected in eternity. But there are also the people united with him in life that will be united with him in eternity. So those that believe with Jesus and are partnering with God to do good and bring good, will partner with him in eternity. Those who are not united, who refuse God, therefore not partnering with him, will be separated from eternity. That is the biblical understanding of hell. And we have a very liberal church society happening where what's being taught is hell is just a thing on earth when people do bad things to one another. Now, I'll tell you, Jesus talks about hell being a place on earth where sin happens. But it's not simply that. It's also an eternal place. Here's what your New Testament says, 2 Th- Thessalonians 1.9. They, meaning those that are separated from God, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now again, I am not trying to scare you into making some decision. I don't think that was, that's what Jesus is doing, but I think it's a gentle reminder of Jesus Let's walk through the door. Because there is a reality that God's wrath burns against sin. And that apart from receiving His grace and forgiveness, that sin is me. And God therefore, God's wrath burns against me. And so I can choose. Do I allow Jesus to pay for my wrath and be united to God, or do I want to pay for my wrath? Because here's a question that I get all the time, and that people have a problem with Christianity. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Anyone ever wrestle with that one? Would raise my hand? Yeah. How could a loving God send anyone, if you say God is love. I can't buy a God that was love that then would say eternal destruction, weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does that work? Well, here's what I would tell you. God doesn't send anyone to hell. Humans choose hell. God just simply gives them what they want. So if the kingdom of God is to say, deny self, Jesus, you're in charge of my life. I'm living for you. And the kingdom of the world is, God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm in charge. Then God gives you that freedom. He says, if you want to live in charge of life, do it. If you want to live life on your terms, do it. But don't think you do that and then all of a sudden turn eternity, oh, but now I'm on your team. That, that doesn't work. God gives people what they want. If they want a life separated from him, he will give them that. That separation goes for eternity. How many how many teachers we have in the room? Raise your hand. Teachers? How many students we have? Raise your hand. Yeah, there we go. Right? So if you're a teacher, you've been there. If you're a student, you've probably maybe been on the wrong side of this. Um, you get your, your grade card. You know, you get your scores at the end of the semester, and you look on there, there's an F. And there's what happens. I was a teacher for a few years. Kids come to the classroom. Why'd you give me an F? What's your teacher say? I didn't give you an F. You deserved an F. You earned an F, correct? So it's right. So when a student gets an F, here's what happens. Either they didn't care and they didn't want another grade and they're like, oh, that's fine with me. Okay, you can have it. Or they like the idea of an A. This is kind of where I was usually. They like the idea of an A. They just didn't do the work to make the grades they needed. Either way, the teacher's going to tell you, I didn't give you An F. You earned an F. Again, we talk about hell. Let's not see God as this, like, I'm going to zap them for eternity. (laughs) Actually, God who beckons all of humanity, come to me, come to me, come to me. But humanity that says, no, God, I don't want anything to do with you. And God says, okay, I'll honor your decision. It's a tough passage, isn't it? Tough passage, tough, tough teachings of Jesus. So let's get practical here as we start to kind of wrap this down. A couple. So here, here's what some of you are wondering. How do I know? Because remember, Jesus is talking here to people, not that are like, hey, God, forget you. I don't have anything to do with you. He's not talking to those people. He ta- he's talking to people that think they're in, that they think they're through the door, and they're actually false believers. And the reality is, there's probably many people here this morning that think they're in, but are actually false believers. How do I know? Let, let me give you a, a couple of, two things to wrestle through where I think we see this the most. The first type of false believer, I'm going to call I people. I people. And here's, here's what I mean by that. And, and we can look back to this passage. Let's go to the one in Matthew It talks about this, uh, Matthew 7, 21. Here's what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God through the door, but only who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, listen to this. On that day, remember, they're standing outside knocking like, hey, wait a second, how come the door's shut? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Question, for the people that are knocking, saying, wait a second, wait a second. Where is the focus of them? Themselves and what they are doing. They're I people. Wait a second, Jesus, let me in. Let me, I came to church every Sunday. Except for when I want to go out of town. I, I read my Bible. Jesus, I went on a mission trip. I went to Mexico and I shared the gospel. Jesus, I quit cussing and that was for you. Where's the focus? Me, self. And, and in America, like Midwest Bible Belt America, like that is one of the most common things I hear. Like you go on the street today, we have the, the chili cook-off, there's people everywhere um, today. You go out to most people, say, hey, are you a Christian in, in Midwest America? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Why? why why would God let you in what's the answer I'm a good person I'm a good person I go to church on Easter I'm a good person where's the focus me and what I've done so here's the gospel the gospel is not about you and what you have done the gospel is about Jesus and what he did that's the gospel See, I people are looking to their religious action, their works, to get them through this door. They come to the door and knock. Yeah, look look at all I've done, Jesus. So here's the reality about the narrow door. We don't have a lot of bags with our accomplishments that we take through that door. We leave them. And we simply walk through by faith in what Jesus did, not in what we're doing. So the first types of false believers are what I would call I people. Your salvation is based on what you think you're doing to get to God. That is not the gospel. Here's a second type of false believer that that I think we see all the time. I call it one hand open, one hand closed believers. Here's what I mean by that. One hand open. Oh yeah, Jesus, I I love you. I want to go to heaven. Grandma's in heaven. I want to be with grandma. I come to church. Jesus, I love you. One hand open. But the other hand, Jesus, you're not getting this. You're not, you can, oh yeah, Jesus, you can have my Sunday mornings. I'll even give you 20 minutes every morning when I read my Bible. One hand open. You're not touching this part of my life. I'm convinced when people get baptized, we get baptized with two hands out of the water. One hand is our sexuality, the other is our wallet. Saying, Jesus, you can't touch those. And again, not to shame you. Again, the gentle invitation from Jesus to ask yourself, what am I holding on to? What have I told Jesus? Like I'll follow you with part, me, maybe you're not touching this. Is it your sexuality? Is it your money? Is it t- I don't know. What are you holding on to? Paul will write about this in Galatians 5:19. The works of the flesh are evident. Here we go. The works of of what we want to hold on to other hands. And he starts with it. Sexual morality. I did a talk with college students last night called The Naked Truth, and we talked about sexuality and how uh, all of humanity is holding on to parts of that. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, I can't say that enmity, strife jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things alike. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those that hold on to those and say, Jesus, you aren't touching it, are one hand open people and one hand closed people. And he says, those people are still walking through the wide door that says, do it your way. You're in charge. Now, Here's what this, let me be clear, here's this verse is not saying that if you struggle with sexual morality you're out. That's not what that said. Because here is maybe a very accurate depiction of what the Christian life looks like. It's two hands open but one hand always wanting to grab onto something. You guys feel that? Like constantly just no, no. But by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit continuing to open that. It's beautiful in our city group this, this week, one of the the girls was talking about, she's starting to learn how to give money here and, and give at Hill City. And she said when she went to give last week, she said it was like she saw on the outside I looked all happy and like, oh, I'll get to drop my money. But but she's on the inside, every binning was just like and didn't want to let go. But here's what I told her. That tells me you're living the Christian life. Because one hand open and one hand closed, that's eh, my money. God didn't tell me what to do with my money. But true, genuine faith is like, oh God, help me, help me trust you. It's opening. And then you're going to close again. It's opening. So those that do that, that just live with one hand closed, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So there are two main types of false believers that I see. I, people, here's what I'm doing. Their their work, their their trust is on their earning their salvation. The other is one hand open, one hand closed. On one hand, yeah, I believe in you, Jesus. The other hand, nope, you're not touching it. Wrestle with that. Ask your question. ask, Ask the Lord, God, could I be? A person that kind of thinks I'm a believer, but really. At the end of the day, I'm not. Wrestle with that, and then let me let me close like this. So, how do I know? Like, what if that's a false believer? What's a true believer? Let me give you a few questions to ask yourself, and maybe wrestle with in your city groups this week. First is a doctrine test. Here's the first two questions. Here, number one: What do you believe about Jesus? If you want to wrestle with, am I really with God in His kingdom, united with Him? What do I believe about Jesus? Is Jesus a nice moral teacher who's a good example? Because that's not what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus: that He is the Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, that came and lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners, and it's only through Him that you can get to God. Jesus said, "I'm the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to God through me." What do you believe about Jesus? Here's a second question to ask yourself: doctrine question: What do I believe about salvation? Is salvation, how I'm saved, me trying to be a good person, or is salvation by grace through faith? Through faith in the Son of God. Now, I was talking to some guys this week, I was doing discipleship with them, and I was telling them, when we talk about faith or believing, it's easy to think of faith as just this intellectual belief in something. So again, when I say What do you believe about salvation? Grace through faith. Faith is not just, I believe in God. Satan believes in God. Faith is not just, I believe that Jesus was God's son. Satan believes that. Faith is not, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Satan believes that. Well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross and that those who trust him will go to heaven. Satan believes that. See, faith is not an intellectual belief. It is a a resting, it's a heart belief. Faith means to rest in something, not believe in something. Let me give you another stupid example. I believe this chair, intellectually, I believe this chair will hold me up if I sit in it. It looks pretty steady, pretty sturdy. I've been working out recently, Trey's been helping me with that, and it'll hold me up. Intellectually, I believe. When do I have true faith in this? When I sit See, faith, biblical faith, is to rest in it. Many of you have intellectual faith in Jesus, but you've yet to rest in his finished work on the cross. You're still trying to earn it yourself. See, faith is to rest in. So doctrine test. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about salvation? Last one, life test. How do I live now Because of Jesus. Now notice what I said, not how do I live, question mark, because that can very easily turn into trying to earn God's favor. How do I live because of Jesus? So in the book of Genesis, humanity's created to partner with God and bring good and flourishing to his creation. That's what Adam and Eve are called to do. Partner with God, join hands with him in this partnering covenant to bring good. Here's what it looks like to live the Christian life. It's to once again partner with God through the narrow door, bringing goodness to his creation, to people around you. It's a partnership. Look at your life. Would you say, I am partnering with God to bring flourishing, to bring good here? I'm not gonna do it perfectly, that's why I have grace, but my life is a partnership. And I say it like that because for many years, the message of Christianity that I heard at least was, don't do bad things. Hear me, guys. You are not saved just to not do bad things. You are saved to do good. See the difference? There's a big difference. The Christian life is not about not sinning. The Christian life is about partnering with God to bring flourishing to those who are around you. It's the difference of showing up to work, trying not to do bad things, or showing up to work to do great things and help your company flourish? Are you partnering with God? And then part of that life test, is there a evidence of repentance in my life? See, repentance is to turn away from sin. So if I'm supposed to partner with God, sin would be not partnering with God and doing my own way. Repentance is to turn away from that. So the life of a Christian should be constantly turning away from sin of just my rebellion and going with God to partner with him and being and bringing, flourishing to his creation. Is there evidence of repentance? So let's go back to the hand. When you, because you're constantly trying to grab a hold of things, is there evidence in your life of letting go and asking God in the midst of this to, to walk with you? And you Keep holding on, let go. That's the Christian life. Is there evidence of that? Okay, now, let's close here. I'm not trying to scare you. I want us to have a sense of urgency, but not hurry. It's a difference between the two. See, urgency is like, man, this is heavy stuff. This is eternal stuff. And I need to have a sense of urgency to say, I, I gotta wrestle through some things. And so here's the like today, after the gathering, elders, we'll be down here. We would love if you would come down with a sense of urgency saying, hey, I gotta wrestle through some things here. Maybe you come down and say, my whole life I grew up thinking getting to God was about doing all these things, and now I hear it's by faith. Help me understand that. Come down. Have a sense of urgency afterwards. We'll talk with you about it. But I don't want hurry. And I think for many years in the church, we tried to, like, scare, scare the hell out of people, literally. You know what I mean? Like, you better turn or burn to try to, you know, get them out of hell but really all we did was scare them is their sense of hurry and they never wrestle with it because here's what Jesus will say. Brad will teach on in a couple weeks. Count the cost. There's a narrow door and walking through that is tough. Count the cost. So I don't want you to, the reason we don't do invitations here at Hill City and I'm not saying any churches that do invitations, I'm not saying they're wrong. It's just for us. We don't do like an invitation during the music because I don't want people to just hurry up and make some emotional decision because there's cool music playing in the background. I'd rather that be slow where we have time to process and talk and think. So come down afterwards. Let's talk. We'll get you in a place where you can start learning and get some discipleship. Have a sense of urgency, but not hurry. Let's close this up. Every week we close with communion. We do it at Hill City every single week for a very important reason, because every week this re-centers us. Everything that we do in our gathering, from the first call to worship The songs, the sermon is centering and bringing us to this moment of communion. I want us to never overlook this. Never overlook this. Everything we do is bringing us here. Why? Because it's here that we weekly remind ourselves, we practice that our salvation is upon Jesus and what he's done. Like you bring nothing down this morning, do you? You don't bring your accomplishments, you bring nothing with you, you simply receive. But this meal is bigger than that. This meal is tells a story, and we're gonna finish. See, a lot of you put up your Bibles because, you know, like, oh, communion." No, this is, like, this is the highlight. To wait to put up your Bibles each week until we kind of get past it, because this is huge. Verse 29 of Luke. Here's what Jesus says. Right after he says all this. Remember, what was the question? What was the question? Will those, come on. Will those who are saved be few? Jesus answers with this narrow door, then here's how he closes. Look at that. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. So Jesus comes to an ethnocentric group of people that believe that good Jews are the only ones that are in. He says, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is way different than this as a matter of fact. The, der- the, the, the door is narrow." But the people that walk through that door are not just good ethnic Judean Jews. They are people from every tribe and language and country who by grace, through faith, are believing. And it points us, this table, this communion that we're gonna do, it points us to a story that's gonna happen. It hadn't happened yet. And here's the story that will one day be at the end of all things, that Jesus will gather his people that by faith, through, by grace, through faith, striving, struggling, falling down, getting back up, working hard, will one day be done. And he, Jesus will say to them, come to me. Come, my good and faithful servant. Now it is time to rest. And we will sit around the table from people from all over the world and we will feast on the goodness of God. We will drink the wine of celebration of what Jesus has done. Like all of this story is pointing us to this moment. And this moment is a future of the goodness of God's love that we will celebrate together. Don't grow weary. Keep fighting. Keep wrestling with sin. Keep letting go. And let this meal be a foretaste of what will be at the end. A celebration of the fight is over. Finally.